Hi, Christine McDaniel here with the Co-Living Code. And today I have Robert Boyer on. And this is really exciting and different because we actually have somebody, he's actually an assistant professor over at, he's at um, North Carolina, Charlotte. And he reached out to me. So he's actually does a lot of work in the co-housing space. So we're really going to deep dive into that. You guys have know you guys know that that's you know people are using the words interchangeably. So I'm excited to, and he already knows that's going to be number one question I'm going to ask him is just to tell us the difference between co-housing and co-living because we've heard that both words kind of used synonymously, and um, he has a lot of published research already on you know in regards to co-housing. Um, he's in the urban planning uh, side of things on the education piece. So yeah, now we've got an educator on our show, which we're very grateful for. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Robert, let me uh, have you go ahead and kind of tell all of our audience and listeners uh, more about you know, what you do, what you're up to, and then how you got into this field. Oh, great. Thanks so much, Christine. Um, so I am uh, a professor uh, of urban planning in the Department of Geography and Earth Sciences at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, my research is mostly about urban sustainability, and um, I got into the field of co-housing um, and um, intentional communities while I was writing my dissertation. Uh, the short story is, uh, while I was a graduate student, I visited Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, which is in rural Missouri. It is a very inspirational community. They're living at um, levels of consumption um, that would be considered less than one earth per person, right? They're consuming their fair share of resources, which is really rare in the United States. Um, and I was absolutely fascinated with what they were doing. I thought, you know, this is the answer, right? That, or an answer, uh, a answer about how we can live sustainably on the planet. Why aren't more people doing this? So that, that began my journey into understanding intentional communities, understanding why they're so hard to do, um, uh, especially when it seems that they offer so many answers that urban planners and public leaders are interested um, in pursuing, uh, especially with regard to the environment. And so eco-villages kind of naturally bled into co-housing, which is another form of intentional community. Um, and recently I've gotten uh, very interested in co-living um, as another form of uh, collectivist living or uh, a way of living together um, and getting more out of being together than living in an isolated situation. I love that. And I love that you use the word intention, right? Intentional living. Cause that's the, that's when somebody asks me the difference between co-living and just roommates, I sure. said, well, co-living has a lot more intention to it. So mm -hmm. a house might have a specific theme, like kindergartners, it's all entrepreneurs, or you might have all musicians. Like it's either done with a theme or just done with a lot of intention of like, hey, we're going to actually live collectively together right. when a lot of roommate situations, they kind of live in the same house, but they have completely separate lives. To me, that's, the, that's how I explain the difference between co-living and roommates. But I'd be mm -hmm. curious to hear, you know, if you have any other different thoughts on that. No, I, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, intentional community is as old as the United States. Um, there is a very long legacy of groups of people that decide to live together for a reason. Um, you could even go back to the, to the earliest colonies in the United States when people moved over from Europe as a way to create a space where they could worship the way they wanted or they could uh, be free from burdensome taxes in the way they wanted. 
Um, and so there, over the generations, there have been different waves of intentional communities, um, often in response to major societal trends. Um, and it is really only um, since the early to mid 20th century that we have as a society created housing and created communities that cater to, uh, to nuclear families as the, an isolated um, form of consumption. Um, so today it's, it's very difficult to access housing that is not designed for uh, isolated family living, right? Uh, where it assumes that your, um, your economic and social world can be met in a single household with the people that you're immediately related to. That's the norm today. And, um, and it's not, hasn't always been so dominant um, throughout our history. We've had lots of different ways to living together, of living together. So this impulse to live together better is not new, um, but it has been dormant in, in, in the United States for a generation. No, and that's so, and I do explain that to people too. I said, they're like, oh, it's the millennials doing this or, you know, cause these are the people that are in their forties and fifties, roughly age range. Mm -hmm. They don't mm -hmm. understand it at all. And, I, and they're like, mm -hmm. I would never do that. And I'm like, okay, you, I, you don't have to do it. That's fine. I go, but I'm telling you right now, these newer generations and not just the millennials, but even Gen Z, right. they're right. more about the sharing economy and they're right. more about, you know, experiences over possessions. So what do you think, is it just a generational shift or like what triggered that shift? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that it is a, it, exclusive to a millennial generation um, because when uh, co-housing, which is the one form of intentional community that I've studied a lot, is overwhelmingly uh, older people, uh, people that would be considered baby boomers or um, and, and if you look at the average age of them, someone in Generation X would be a youngster in the co-housing movement. Um, and so, there, so while it is a very rare movement, right, there, there's about 165 co-housing communities, established co-housing communities in the country, there are always more that are trying to get started. They're trying, they're trying to attract people, um, and they often do, right? A, a very common story for co-housing startups is that they attract a whole lot of interest. Thousands of people express interest. They stop by, they, um, they pay an, an initial membership, right? A kind of a nominal membership so they can stay involved and then it takes too long or it, it uh, becomes too costly. Um, and the research that I've done has shown it's not that there's not an interest in this type of housing. It's just that the system is rigged against it. Um, all of our financial structures, zoning and land use regulations, um, and, uh, and, and just general marketing for housing is really not geared toward collectivist living or intentional community. Um, it, so, so there are so many forces that work against this type of living that people usually say, you know what, it's, it's too expensive or it's going to take too long. I'll just do what's easiest. I won't go against the grain. No, and Robert, I'm so glad you're talking about this too. So I'm on, um, I met this amazing individual. She's, they're down, they're probably in their mid sixties mm -hmm. and they're in San Diego and they, I'm on their list now and they have these meetings. So it's exactly what you're explaining. Mm -hmm. um, monthly meetings of, of what they're going to build. Mm -hmm. And they even have these amazing documents that they've sent me that, you know, this is our future plan. You know, they've right. laid it all out and you're right. So I think it's a lot of excitement and it's like, okay, now it's all the steps to actually 
build it out. Because again, this is, and then maybe we could dive right into that, is explaining mm -hmm. the difference between co-housing or what right. your definition, co-housing and co-living. I usually explain it in the sense that um, co-housing is usually sometimes the big plot of land and they have their, each have their own individual homes and then right. maybe they have a collective rec center or kitchen or, you know, they share a lot of resources right. in on that land. Um, I mean, that's how I define it. Again, I'm not a professor, right. so maybe of urban planning, but uh, sure. yeah, I don't know if you, you had a different definition of that. I, I think your description of co-housing uh, fits a lot of what we see. Um, there are a lot of co-housing um, follows, follows what uh, Chuck Durrett, who is a real pioneer, an architect, a pioneer in this field, calls the Danish model. Um, uh, co-housing co in the United States has its roots in Denmark. Um, where you had um, individual uh, homes, Some, sometimes it's share walled, so they're townhomes, uh, but they're clustered on a piece of land around a common house. And um, everyone has kind of their own full home, right? You have your own kitchen, you have your own bedroom, and, um, but what's stripped out of those homes often are the social spaces that you use once a year in a normal house, right? So most Americans, if they grew up in the suburbs, they lived in a home where there was that one room where you used it once a year, right? Uh, you used it a couple times a year. That is gone. Dining spaces are gone, but you still have your own complete home otherwise. Um, and then you meet your neighbors in a common house and common recreational space. Um, not all co-housing is like that. There is some co-housing that is, uh, looks more like a, uh, a condominium, condominium or a multi, multi-family housing. Uh, more like apartment dwellings. And it's in those types of co-housing that I think the co-living and co-housing really begin to blur. Um, and so, um, and there are some co-housing places that, you know, I, they, they really resemble co-living to me. Although what I've observed is that co-living is much more oriented toward um, younger people that are uh, in tech fields, right? They're digital nomads. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? They um, and they're interested in being in a social space with with people like them, and they may or may not live in these places forever, um, right? Uh, and, and in fact, um, I think there are some models where you can just skip around to all sorts of if you're a subscriber to the service, um, and maybe that's maybe that's what what you run, um, but you can you can move around from from different places. Co-housing is not built like that. Most people. They are committed to living in co-housing. Um, they're usually they usually own their home, um, which uh, so they're they're usually committed there. They're going to stay there for a little while, um, and uh, and there's no such network where you can bounce around to different co-housing communities. Um, so it's much it's a little more sedentary. Okay. Ooh, that's great. That's a that really helps define it a little bit more. Even you're right. <laughs> they're not jumping around. And co-living, it's that flexibility. It's almost treating like housing as a service, right? right. Where it's a membership base, they could jump around. You know, right. Rome does a really good job of that outside. Um, you know, and same with ours. It's just like a one month uh, minimum, if that. You know, sometimes we'll have sure. people just for a week or two um, mm -hmm. because they are jumping around. But at the same time, they want to be around like-minded people. They want to co-live and have that network of like-minded people. 
And that's when co-living works really, really well. Um, okay, no, that's helpful. And you no, know, because you literally lunch yesterday with with a lawyer. You know, we were just going. You know, he's interested in the concept of co-living, mm-hmm. and uh, but he's just like, well, Christine, what's the difference between you know co-housing and co-living, and and what if it's a house versus like an apartment community? Because you know we've heard the term used for both, and mm-hmm. so it's just it's always fun, and I welcome that because it is such a new industry, and we are trying to define it. Um, so I'm like, okay, these are great questions, you know, and then that's, that's the next one for you. You know, and this is the one I get more, oh gosh, I've gotten this question like 30 times in the last week. Um, especially in like the investment and community, right there again, and they don't know the industry at all yet. So, uh, co-living, you know, what's the difference between co-living and roommates? Yeah. You know, I, I, it's, I think that's a really good question. Um, there are, I could imagine that there are sets of roommates that could very well fit what I see as co-living. Um, but I, I think from, from what I gather about co-living, is there, is a, uh, there is a real intention and there is programming, right? It, uh, that there is such an intention that you're going to live together, that there are organized activities, there are organized spaces, um, and uh, and you know, you, you have decided that you're going to live in a place that is social, whereas roommates might, may or may not be just, you know, I found someone that I can split the cost with. Um, and we're just going to share this space until, you know, I find another place to live. Um, so I know, I know people that have roommates and they're very intentional with those roommates and, um, and they've set up whole systems and whole programs within the complex that they share. Uh, but a lot of roommates I know, um, you know, they're, there are, it's a it's a matter of convenience, and then they split ways, and they may never see each other again, um, and they just try and avoid each other in the kitchen and the bathroom. Um, uh, whereas you know co living, it seems like it's you know they're together by design, and um, and also the design seems to fit uh, this social space where you're you're able to get away, you have privacy, but then when you're outside of that private space. Uh, it's very easy to interact with people and uh, social interaction is, is very much encouraged. Awesome. And then I know you've done like so much research. I'm sure right. <laughs> tons and tons when it comes to this stuff. Have you researched, have you gone far back as far mm-hmm. as um, tribes and how tribes were formed and how they operated? Is there any sort of translation to what we're trying to get back to in your opinion? Um, I, I, no, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about, uh, for example, uh, indigenous groups or Native American uh, living. Um, and, but there, there are definitely roots, um, you know, uh, distant roots to um, early uh, socialist utopias in the United States. Um, some of the earliest communes in, in the United States uh, have their roots in early American communal living. Uh, sorry, uh, rather, co-housing has uh, distant roots in early American communal living. Um, and it's been a very long time, so ideas of uh, communal living and collectivism have kind of migrated all over the world. Um, and uh, as it happens, co-housing got its roots from, from Denmark most recently. But um, eco-villages and, um, and earlier in time, there are hippie communes, right? And a lot of people have, we have, kind of have hippie communes in our collective memory. It's another form of, um, of intentional community. Um, all kind of have their roots in, um, you know, in, in early American uh, communal living. 
um, and uh, different philosophies. But um, I don't know specifically if there are any uh, ties to Native American or uh, other indigenous groups. Yeah, and, and only because I'm because it's neat. You, it, what I I say it works best when everybody's living together and there's like a common thread amongst everybody, but they're still and everybody you know like minded, right. but they're not identical. It's still everybody brings different strengths to the home. So, you know, somebody's good at this, somebody's good at that, but then maybe there's a common you know thread amongst everybody, um, and I think that's how people could get along so well and relate with each other because they have those commonalities, but then they still have different strengths they're bringing to the table to the yep. point where we're even, you know, on the software we're building, we want to factor in, you know, we're looking into the five love languages, um, mm -hmm. you know, Myers-Briggs, or maybe even creating our own of a personality test to see if there's a way that we can actually, you know, somebody could fill something out, you know, and see like, okay, here's your tribe. Like, this is the tribe that you're going to get along the best with. Again, this is way like, sure. but what's, what's funny is, um, you know, when we started talking about, you know, and this was our, my CTO was like, Hey, what do you think, Christine, about, uh, the five love languages? Have you heard of it? And I go, it is so funny because every house in the last two years we've been in, we find out, we ask each other, you know, mm -hmm. hey, what's your love language? Like, because then again, you, you know how to relate to them a little bit better if they want, you know, access service or right. quality time. You know, it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship because um, sure. you're living in such close quarters. If you knew that about the person, um, you can relate even better and get along better living together. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, um face-to-face -face interaction and, and really beginning to know pers a person in real space and time uh, is, is very important. And I think I, it, would, it would be ironic, I think, if uh, an, an online test having never met someone would determine what in-person community you end up in. I know, uh, right? <laughs> Again, we're just, we're, we're toying yeah. with the idea. Yeah. Because it's and like, how, fact, yeah. And that's, and that's both a cost and a benefit to uh, intentional communities. Um, what I've observed with co-housing and eco-villages, one of the reasons it's so difficult to get these things started is because you have to decide who you're going to live and uh, live with and collaborate with for, for potentially for a very long time. Um, and so there are absolutely differences in personality and differences in preferences that can get in the way of forming a community. Um, and then later on, um, there are there can be a clash of personality and clash of priorities. Um, once a community is already founded and someone comes in, if they don't agree with those priorities, well, if it's a community built around them, then they're probably not going to fit in. So it's really important that a community has its priorities clear. Um, and and I think also to your point, if everyone that joined a community was exactly the same and brought in the exact same skills and the exact same ideas, that sure would be a boring and, and, and pretty weak community, in my opinion. Um, you know, they, they'd be stuck doing one thing. And, you know, um, you know and uh, so I think that there is a community can both have a lot in common and be diverse. And, and those are the strongest ones that endure for a long time. And then have you seen it more successful when there's an actual like appointed, mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to use the word leader or whatever, mm -hmm. just that point person to kind of manage somebody to go to? Have you seen okay. that more successful? Well, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because that one of the d defining properties of co-housing is that there is no, it's a non-hierarchical decision-making structure, um, which means that, um, you know, there may be a person that's in charge of facilitating meetings. Um, but there is no one person with a veto, um, no single person, okay. right? Okay. Um, so 
there are lots of, for example, a lot of, a lot of big decisions in co-housing and, and in eco-villages are made by consensus. Cool. Consensus is really, takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of skill. Um, and so the best communities that I've visited are uh, actually the, the members practice. They actually, they get training in how to participate in making a decision, which is something that no one, very few people in the United States do today. Um, and I think that's why we see a lot of breakdown in dialogue, especially in the political and public realm is that, you know, we're, we're all very new. We're all very nervous about uh, letting our opinion get known. And we tend to um, have very, um, you know, strong emotional reactions and then strong emotional reaction is fine. Um, but then you have to, as a co-participant in that discussion, um, try and isolate someone's uh, emotional reaction um, from the content of the decision. Um, that's really hard to do, right? People like to uh, react emotionally and take things very personally. And so uh, we have to go through training to learn how to make productive decisions in spite of our differences. Um, most of us don't know how to do that. No, and that's, you're right. I mean, even the very first home, you know, was the, there was one person like leading the meetings and, you know, but there, you're, we did it consensus every time, you know, if mm -hmm. somebody we wanted somebody to move in, it had to be a consensus. We had to have a conversation around the dinner table, mm -hmm. um, go over the pros and cons and just, no. And I, I agree. I agree. I, I think that works best um, to have that set up because you still want somebody to lead everybody, right? To lead stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there has to be some agreement about how decisions are made. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 maybe it's faster if someone is just assigned to make a decision um, or someone is paid, right? Someone is paid to decide how cleaning gets done. Um, but in co-housing, um, which I think this is, a, this is one difference that I see in co-living and co-housing, um, is that uh, in co-housing, all the yard work, um, all the cleaning work, it's done by the people living there. Um, so they work together to maintain their own community. My understanding with co-living is that uh, sometimes they'll, you know, they'll hire uh, someone to get that done. Um, yeah. and so, so that, that's another big difference. Okay. No, love it. And then where, you know, where do you see again, and you've been kind of, you know, working on this for a while, where mm -hmm. do you see the industry of co-living going as a whole? Well, I mean, I can't keep up with, with all the new, new co-living, right? It, it just seems to be growing extremely fast. This is different. Um, we're, I'm not used to, having, having studied co-housing and eco-villages, I'm not used to seeing headlines every day about new communities. It takes, so um, the fact that it is driven by developers and seems to have found a niche that is within the mainstream real estate market is uh, optimistic for the movement. You know, I think that um, it is, it's going to grow. There are a lot of people that I know are interested in collective living. When I describe this to people of all ages, either themselves, either they themselves or someone they know is, is interested in ways that we can live together better. Um, and we were, you know, earlier we were talking about millennials versus uh, older generations. I think that there are applications for this that are especially good for uh, widowed individuals, right? People that have lived together for a long time with someone and then lose that company, um, that there could be a, a, a social living space um, with opportunities to interact with other people, yet you're still independent, uh, seems to me like an amazing model. 
No, so, I agree. Yeah. I agree. That excites me because they don't want to go into like a senior home, a senior, like a facility of some no. sort. They no. want to still live their right. lives, but then they don't want to be lonely. So they want to live collectively, share resources, help each other out, right. you know, and I've talked to people, you know, in that age range where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I mean, they can, uh, you know, to have an on-site nurse come in once a day, you mm -hmm. know, and help everybody versus, right. I mean, the cost would be ridiculous if it was just for one person. Um, so, I do, yeah. that excites me. So I see right now, uh, like you described, a lot of co-living seems to be populated by, uh, by millennials, by young tech workers. Um, and, and I think that the type that model is really conducive to that lifestyle. And I think, but I also think that, um, once this, once it takes off and gains more publicity, that uh, a broader demographic will say, well, how can I, how can, how can I make this work for me? Um, and that'll be exciting to see whether and to what extent co-living expands to more demographics and more types of places. Because right now, my observation is that it's mostly in high rent markets, um, uh, places where it's, it's very expensive to rent an apartment otherwise, especially if you're just out of school. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to see whether it will expand to, to, uh, to more places um, and to, to, yeah, to both suburban and urban places. And so do you think, and, and honestly, I get, well, I know you're not going to answer, not truthfully, but and, answering honestly, like, do you, because I hear this recently too. Oh, it's a mm -hmm. trend. Oh, it's just a fad. It's just a trend. It's going to disappear. And I'm like, I don't, I mean, I'm, I have this on Google alerts. I have co-living right. on Google alerts, Google right. alerts, and you're exactly right. Every single day, the amount of articles, the amount of new development, I mean, it's insane. It's like wildfire. And I'm like, I don't think it's going to just disappear. <laughs> I don't think so either. I think you're right. And I think the data that convinces me of that is um, the percentage of households in America that are, can't, don't fit the mold of housing that has traditionally been built in America, right? So our housing model in the United States um, Right, uh, so, something like about 70% of homes built every year are single family homes, right? Detached single family homes. And that housing model was built with a nuclear family in mind. The nuclear family is still a, uh, or, or rather, a household headed by a married couple. That's still about 50% of households in the United States, but it used to be 80%, right? 80% uh, of households uh, after World War II. Um, or close to 80% were headed by a man and a woman that were married. Um, and that is just not so common anymore. And our the housing market will begin to adjust to that. Um, and I think co-living is one of those. Um, and I, and I, I imagine that it is not a trend. This is something that will be around and it will grow. Well, I am so excited, Robert. You have a PhD. <laughs> like, I am glad you're, you're here with these. Uh, you can actually bring some facts behind you know, and some data. Well, you have the data and you have the numbers. Right, and, right, right, like, right. You know, and that's nice because, you know, I get these questions asked and I'm like, okay, I, I need to actually have the data behind it to really justify like, no, this is why. I mean, I could go off my gut all day long, but most people want facts behind it. So I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, we have two, um, two experts that are very great and amazing at Wikipedia, um, trying so hard to, because, and you probably already know this, co-living is under co-housing on Wikipedia. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so we're trying really hard, you know, to just say, well, actually they're different. They're not yeah. the same. You know, we've been working on that for months. Um, so yeah, and, and so, uh, so, 
you and I intuitively know that these things are different, um, but something that I'm working on right now uh, is uh, conducting a survey um, of co-living residents um, and uh, to really get the data to understand what motivates individuals to move into co-living, what they do when they're inside, and then how they interact with the, the larger world, right? Uh, politically, how they engage civically with the world outside of their community. And we have data uh, from one of my colleagues at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. Uh, we're gonna compare the same answers to people living in co-housing and in condominiums. And so we're gonna have the data to show um, whether or not these two things are different. You know, we're open to the possibility that they're exactly the same. My guess is that we're gonna see some real differences in the data and that um, we'll be able to get back, with, back to you and to the co-living community about what makes co-living today different. Um, and it may change, right? This movement is growing so fast that what we see today may, may be completely obsolete in a few years. Great. No, it, it, no, and I love it. And that's the no. And I, I, I had already given him my word that I'm getting the survey out to the co-living community. Promise right. we're going to get survey results because that's exactly, you know, that's, he reached out to me to say, hey, you know, how do I get the survey out into their hands? How do we get it filled out? You know, it's like, hey, I mean, we would love to see the data and the results. So, so that's definitely the project we're working on together. Um, so we will, we'll get that and we'll, we'll find out what the data says, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to see. Yeah, so thank you so much. And yeah, when he, when he reached out for the survey, I go, yeah, of course I could do that. I'd be happy to. But I'm like, but I would love to get you on my show in the meantime. So Robert, thank you so much for spending the time today. I really appreciate it. I know everybody watching and listening to this um, will appreciate it too, just to get kind of um, you know, more facts, more data, and just getting it, you know, we've never had somebody from the educational side come in um, on this topic. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Christine. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Have a great day.